Amen. You're at uh, first, first Peter chapter 1, hopefully. We're looking at First Peter chapter 1. We're going to work through verses 3 this morning, 3 through 9. 3 through 9. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. The church, you know, for ages has rightly taken each year to observe Advent. And I say the church, I'm talking about the collective church. You know, Advent is a season that is dedicated to intentionally thinking on the significance of Jesus' arrival to the earth and intentionally thinking about and anticipating his second arrival to the earth. Um, and traditionally, there have been four particular themes um, that have been at the forefront of the season of Advent. Four themes. Hope, peace, love, and joy. Hope, peace, love, and joy. All of these belong to the Christian because Christ has come and because Christ is returning. Hope belongs to the Christian. Peace belongs to the Christian. Love belongs to the Christian. Joy belongs to the Christian because our Savior has come and our Savior is coming again. For the next four sermons, we're, we are going to fix our attention on each one of these themes. Hope, peace, love, and joy. This morning, we'll start with hope and then we will culminate with joy on Christmas Eve, which, by the way, December the 24th, 5, 5 p.m. Um, for Christmas Eve, our candlelight Christmas Eve service. And we invite you to be a part of that. So this morning, we're turning our attention to hope. If hope is most cherished when it's found amidst great hopelessness, then we should have no trouble cherishing Christian hope in our current historical moment. Because we are currently and certainly struggling to hope. We as a country just take our country, but if, you, but if you want, you can take the world in general. We are still trying to collectively get up from the ash and the rubble of the last 18 months, so to speak. We've lost friends. We've lost family. We've turned on each other. Choosing to believe the absolute worst about one another, even when we're only armed with the knowledge of who we voted for. We've argued with one another. We've fought with one another. We are scared and suspicious of one another. Our children literally are killing each other. We had, we've had thus far 222 school shootings this year. It's a record number with the latest taking place obviously this past week in Michigan where four students are now dead and a number of, uh, number of students and even facu uh, faculty injured. 222 shootings just this year. But rather than grieve with compassion for these children and act with passion on these children, children's behalf, Many of us just stand in our partisan political corners and spout out the latest talking points that we've been given by our particular parties. We are struggling. We are struggling to hope. Washington Post, in fact, recently conducted a survey and found that 50% of adults 18 to, uh, 18 to 29 feel like the pandemic has changed them, and over 50% of them are saying that they've been changed negatively as a result of this pandemic. And that is one of the few things that you can read today that is not actually partisan. I mean, you look across the spectrum. They looked across the spectrum. They, they, they surveyed uh, Republicans, they surveyed Democrats, they surveyed independents, and they all found, uh, and they found the same result amongst them all. 
Half of each of these groups agree that COVID has impacted them negatively. Taking it a step further, though, according to the same article and according to the same survey, 51% of those same young adults report having felt down, depressed, and hopeless at least several times in the last two weeks. Down, depressed, and hopeless several times in the last two weeks. 51% of young adults, 18 to 29. 25% of those young adults, 18 to 29, have thought to themselves that they should harm themselves. Multiple times they've had these thoughts in the last two weeks. This was a survey that was released this past week. In the last two weeks, we are struggling to hope. And for us, you know, I, I know this is not some abstract, unrelated concept, th this idea, this struggle for hope. This is not something that's out there for us. For City Light Church, this is in here. It is very real to us, this struggle for hope. Some of us are struggling, for example, with our health. Some of us are struggling with our marriages. Some of us are struggling with our children. Some of us are struggling with our finances. Some of us are struggling with, with our own sin. And I've heard all of these stories, and you poured your heart out to me. And, I, and so I know that this idea, this struggle for hope is not out there. It's in here. And in the midst of all of those struggles, many of us are facing the struggle for hope. So it is with that thought that I turn your attention to 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a letter written by one of the original disciples of Jesus, of course. He wrote this letter as a letter to be shared with Christians throughout the Asia Minor province, a place that we now know as Turkey. Most of these Christians were Gentile believers that were facing harsh and unrelenting persecution. They were facing unrelenting suffering. And Peter calls them exiles because they were seen and they, they, they were seen and treated all over the region as outsiders, as foreigners, as aliens, as people that did not belong where they were. So these people understood suffering. These people understood the struggle to hope. To this group of saints, Peter opens his letter with these words, verse 3. Blessed be the God, of, uh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the first couple of verses that we're about to read, verses 3 through 9, they actually, uh, some, some scholars see them as a hymn of sorts, a hymn of praise a hymn of encouragement. And Peter opens this hymn with these words of praise, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's an odd way to open an a, 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 a ideal or, or, or an odd way to open a letter when you consider all that these folks are facing right now. He turns our attention and our focus immediately to how to handle suffering. 
You handle suffering by turning your attention and your focus to the living hope. He points us to that hope immediately. The source of our hope is where he points us to. In other words, where on earth does hope come from in a world filled with hopelessness? For a group of people like the exiles that Peter is writing to, or for a group of people like us all over this room that are tired, sick, sick and tired of being what? Sick and tired. Where, does, where, where, where do we go for hope? And Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Why would this proclamation of praise be the first words out of the mouth of a man writing to a suffering and persecuted people? It's because this is where hope in a hopeless world comes from. It comes from the triune God. And because we have this God, or more importantly, this God has us. We have living hope in the midst of a hopeless world. And because we have this living hope in the midst of a hopeless world, we can sing praises in the midst of a hopeless world. One of my favorite preachers and theologians, Tim Keller, was recently diagnosed with stage four um, cancer. And this past week, he decided to get on social media and share just a quick thought about it. This is what he said. He said, I have stage four pancreatic cancer, but it is endlessly comforting to have a God who is both infinitely more wise and more loving than I am. He has plenty of good reasons for everything he does and allows that I cannot know. And therein is my hope and my strength. Therein is my hope and my strength. A man with stage four pancreatic cancer is in a tweet saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praising with hope in the midst of a hopeless world. When I read that, I was also reminded of a man in scripture that we probably all know and whose name was Job, who hoped in God. Of course, Job had some moments where he was rocky and struggling and struggling to believe and pressing through. But, but even in the midst of that, after all the suffering, the way, uh, after all the suffering that Job experienced, you would have thought there was nothing left for that man to hope. And yet, though he struggled to find it at times, he still found a way to hope. He still said at times what? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, singing a psalm of hope. Blessed be the name of the Lord, not in my health, because he didn't have it. Blessed be the name of the Lord, not in my healing, because it wasn't present. Blessed be the name of the Lord, not in my job or my finances, because he didn't have any of those either. He had lost it. He had lost all of his, his workers. He had lost all of his money. He was able to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Why? Because his hope was in God who has all of eternity and creation in his hands. But it is not enough to simply acknowledge that the triune God is the source of hope. We have to walk the path that we've been given towards hope. The path to hope. That was the source of hope, moving to the path to hope. How on earth do we receive hope in a world filled with hopelessness? 
how do we get hope in a world filled with hopelessness? To ask the question another way, how is Peter able to urge the saints to sing a song of praise even through suffering? Yes, he's acknowledged God, but what is it that they have and how is it that they have it? You see, because God, according to his mercy, has great mercy, rather, has caused them to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus and gain and inheritance. The path to hope is mercy which produces salvation, which gives access to an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance. Mercy, salvation, inheritance. That's the path to hope. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 5, uh, look with me there. It says again, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the path to hope. Great mercy leading to salvation, gaining access to an inheritance. Mercy, we have hope because we've been made new and not not made new because of what we've done, but because of God's great mercy. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Scripture says that we were sinners, that while we were sinners, Christ came to die on our behalf. Great mercy. Scripture says that we were unable to turn uh, towards God on our own, that we were made alive by God. Great mercy. God caused us, Peter says, to be born again. He turned us from a hopeless end to a hopeful end. Jesus Christ, he came and he came into the world and lived a perfect life. And then he died a death on our behalf. And then he rose for us. And in so doing, he secured an inheritance for us. And what was that? That was great mercy. And that great mercy led us to salvation. So according to his great mercy, we now are born again. He has caused us to be born again. We have hope. Why? Because we've been born again. When you are born again, your affections are new. Your lenses and the way that you see the world are new. The saints of God also, so is your hope. Your hope is new. In fact, without this salvation, we really don't have any hope. Paul says as much in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 through 14. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Having no hope. That was prior to salvation. But verse 13 of chapter 2 says, But now in Christ you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We were without hope, but then great mercy appeared. And that great mercy that came through God caused us to be born again, initiating our salvation. 
and creating for us a living hope. I love that Peter calls this a living hope. In one sense, we know that it is a fully embodied hope because it is in Christ. Christ is our hope. And so in one sense, we know that it is an embodied hope. But in another sense, when we think about a living hope, what that means is that this is a hope that refuses to die in suffering. This is a hope that refuses to die in the midst of marital struggles. This is a hope that refuses to die in financial struggles. You see, when all these things are happening around you, this hope still exists. And why is that? It's because that hope has been given from above, and, that's, and that hope is centered on the one from above. No matter what's happening here, that hope isn't going anywhere. In fact, that hope begins at the resurrection. Did you hear, did you hear what, what Paul said here in, 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 in uh, chapter, chapter 1, verse 4 through 5? He said, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That hope comes through the resurrection. Part of the reason why the resurrection is so important is not only what it says about Christ, but it's also what it says about what Christ is doing in us and what Christ is doing for us. You see, the resurrection pr proved that God's ability to make us new was real. It proved that God's ability to make us new was true. It proved that God's promise to us, a promise to give us a living hope, was in fact a real promise and a true promise and a certain promise. You know, Paul rightly highlights that without the resurrection, our lives are truly without significance. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 17 through 19, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. A hope for this life is an insufficient hope for the eternal soul, saints. Oddly enough, we put all of our stock in what? This life. And we build our hopes, what? In this life. We build our finances and we build our careers and we build our families and we point them to what? The hope in this life. And the hope that's only in this life is an insufficient hope for an eternal soul. Your hope must go deeper if your soul is to be satisfied. You see, because Christ rose, we have the power to rise to a new life in Christ. The resurrection centers our hope. When we see that Christ rose, we have hope that we rise with him. We know that when Jesus says and when, when God says that he can make all things new, including us, we have the ability to believe it. Why? Because we see the resurrection. And you see, if we have the power to rise to a new life in Christ, then we also have the ability to attain the inheritance that comes with that new life. And if we have the ability to attain the inheritance that comes with that new life, that means we have the ability to attain and maintain a living, abiding, eternal hope. So from mercy to salvation, from salvation to inheritance, from inheritance to hope. Verse 4, he says, to an inheritance that is 
imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We have, unlike hope that is resting in this world, right? When you think about hope that is resting in this world, what do you think about? You think about oftentimes riches and wealth and inheritance and but none of those things are imperishable. One of my childhood preachers, and when I say childhood, I'm talking about young, 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 young preachers uh, growing up, used to always say that he's never seen a U-Haul hitched to a hearse. And we can't take anything with us. But you can leave stuff behind. But even the wisdom books will tell you that he, you can leave it behind and, you know, in one to two generations, they'll splurge that and burn that up too. There is no inheritance that we have in this earth that we can say is imperishable. There is no inheritance that we have in this earth that we can say is undefiled. There is no inheritance that we have in this earth that we can say is unfading, that will not fade. There is no inheritance that we have that carries those qualities. And yet, so much of our hope is fixed on those inheritances. But here Peter says, no, the inheritance in which your hope should be fixed on is the inheritance which is laid up in heaven for you the one that is imperishable, the one that is undefiled, the one that will not fade, and the one that God is keeping you and guarding you and protecting you for. How do we respond to hope? Source of hope, God, the triune God, path to hope, Great mercy producing salvation, producing or giving us access to an inheritance. Now the response to hope. Chapter 1, verse 6, look with me. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it, be test, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result and the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In this, in what? In this news about your inheritance, in this news about your salvation, in this news about great mercy, in this news about this great God, you rejoice. You rejoice. In this living hope, you rejoice. Notice, I want you to pay attention to something very important here. Notice that the rejoicing comes even though no circumstances have changed. The rejoicing comes and no, circ no circumstances have changed. Their present circumstance has gone unchanged. By the time this letter reaches their hands in Asia Minor, they'll still be the same persecuted outsiders, aliens, exiles um, that they were before this letter reached them. 
They'll still be harassed. They'll still be mocked. They'll still suffer for claiming Christ as Lord and resisting the gods of Rome. They'll still be rejected. They'll still be rebuked. So how can they rejoice then? Because their hope doesn't rest in present circumstances. It rests in an eternal inheritance. Their hope doesn't rest in what they, what they currently see. It rests in what they will see. He says that, he, Paul, uh, Peter says, may, you, may, uh, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. At the revelation of Jesus Christ. Their hope is in this day in which they will see Jesus as he is. And in that hope, we rejoice. Even though what we see around us can be hot garbage sometimes. We're working ourselves to death. People are arguing and screaming at each other all over the place. Seems like the world is literally going crazy. So we're crazy. We're going crazy. We're sick. We're, we're, you know, people are struggling in terms of finances. People are struggling in terms of marriages. How can I rejoice? Because you're not rejoicing in what you see. You're rejoicing in what is yet to be seen. You're rejoicing in that which is to be revealed to you, which is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And at his coming, you shall see him as he is, and you shall be changed as a result of seeing him as he is. That's where your rejoice comes from. That's where your joy comes from. That's where your hope comes from. You see, that's, see there's, a, there's a lot of distinctions between the hope of this world and the hope that comes in Christ. Just a few real quick I'll highlight. But we have to understand that this is different. When you talk about the hope of this world, for example, worldly hope rests in temporal saviors. Christian hope rests in an eternal Savior. You see, if your only hope is in the world, then, then, then the things that you have hope in have to get better in order for your hope to be sustained. Does that make sense? If your hope is in your situation, whatever your situation is, then your situation has to change in order for your hope to be, uh, be sustained. If your hope is in your health, then the suffering has to end in order for your hope to be sustained. If your hope is in your finances, then the money has to come in order for your hope to be sustained. If your hope is in your marriage, then the marriage has to be solid in order for your hope to be sustained. If your hope is in your healthiness, then the illnesses have to go away. If your hope is in your government, then, then, the, then the right politician has to win for your hope to be sustained. If your hope is in your country, then your country has to thrive in order for your hope to be sustained. Peter isn't thinking about any of that. That when he talks about you rejoicing. None of that is on his mind. Peter says, in this you rejoice. Listen, though now for a little while, 
if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith may, may more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you will be grieved by various trials. In other words, in this you rejoice, even though you're still going through. Peter says, you don't need the present circumstances to get better in order to have hope. Because, because Peter understands that the present circumstances are actually preparing you for what's ahead. That's what he says there. The current circumstances are being used to reveal where your faith truly lies. You want to know where your hope is? Check out your response to your life. It's teaching you lessons about where your hope exists and where your hope rests. Are you always, uh, are, are, you, are you high and low based solely on the money? Are you high and low based solely on what's happening in, in your body? Are you high and low based solely on what's happening in your job? And does it crush you? I'm not saying that you don't have room to struggle. We all have room to struggle. That's what it means to be human and wrapped in this fallen, wrapped in this fallen flesh in this fallen world. But if that's the only posture that you take, then that is where your hope exists. You understand that? But the current circumstances aren't being used to just simply reveal where your faith truly lies. The current circumstances will be used to deepen our praise of Jesus Christ when we finally see him. He says, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. Oh, rather, let me go back. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So through the trials, what happens is that at the day of revelation, it's deepened. Your hope and your love and your gratitude is deepened because of the trials. And so God is using the circumstances not to extinguish your hope, but he's using the circumstances to expose your hope and redirect it to the right place, which is in him, and then deepen your hope in him. Worldly hope rests often in what can be seen but cannot be delivered as well. Worldly hope rests in what we see but cannot deliver. Christian hope rests in what can't be seen but will most certainly deliver. In other words, worldly hope, we, we put worldly hope in, you know, celebrities. We put worldly hope in politicians, and we put worldly hope in, in figures, and, and, and we put worldly hope in substances, and then we mock people that can't see God, right, because they have their hope in God. The interesting thing, though, is that even though we have our hope in all of these figures that we can see, none of them can deliver what's necessary for the satisfaction of our soul. The politicians can't, 
the money, the cars, the houses can't satisfy the ache. Watching our celebrity, just following our celebrities on, in the tabloids and on YouTube can't satisfy the ache. We can see all of them, but none of them can deliver what's ailing our souls. On the other hand, Christian hope says what Peter says in verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice, rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. In other words, Peter says, you haven't had to see him to be satisfied. You haven't had to see him to have your soul nourished. You haven't had to see him to find joy inexpressible, to find peace, to find happiness. Jesus told the disciples, remember when he appeared, he told them, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Christian hope doesn't require sight. It's certain without the sight. The worldly hope is uncertain with the sight. <sighs> Lastly, I'll say this. Hope has an appetite. And what do I mean by that? We live in the midst of perpetual hopelessness. And if you are feeding your soul that hopelessness, then do not be shocked when your soul responds with hopelessness. Your soul has an appetite for hope, meaning that part of the reason why this is important, what we're doing right here, why is this important? Is to feed hope for the soul is to remind us of where our hope should be placed. In the midst of all of the hopelessness that's surrounding us, we gather as saints to be reminded that our hope doesn't rest in this world, but our hope rests in heaven. Our hope, our hope is living and abiding in a Savior, not in a circumstance, not in a situation, but in a real, true, and divine person. This reminds us of that. And then when you go back out, hope is leaking. It's leaking when you go on your job. It's leaking when you're struggling with the kids. It's leaking when you're struggling in your marriage. And so what do you do? You pick up your Bible. Why? To feed the soul hope again. And why do you go to your knees in prayer? You go to your knees in prayer to what? Feed the soul hope again. But if you're not going to the soul in prayer, I mean, if you're not going to your knees in prayer, and if you're not going to the scriptures to be reminded, and you're not coming before and gathering with the saints of God to sing unto God and to hear the word preached before you, what's happening? Your hope is leaking. And so we should not be surprised that we find ourselves in hopeless spaces, in hopeless moments, in, 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 in despair and in darkness. Now, that's not to say you won't find yourself in despair and darkness even when you're coming. Amen. I'm up here preaching every week. 
and still can find myself in despair at times. But what I'm saying is, is that if you do not feed this soul, there is no chance to sustain hope. There is no chance to sustain hope because hope leaves. And so as we are pursuing to, 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 to chase, uh, not chase, but as we are pursuing to walk in this hope, we have to commit ourselves to the, to the gifts of grace that God has given us to feed our souls with this hope. Amen? Don't neglect the gathering of the saints. Don't neglect the unpacking and reading of your scripture. Don't neglect, you know, the time, the time and fellowship outside of this place with like-minded believers who can encourage you to continue on in Jesus. Don't forget, don't, don't neglect the opportunities to fall before your, uh, fall on your face and cry out to God. These are the ways that you feed yourself the hope that's needed in the midst of a hopeless world. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you.